Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. I'm very honored to have my guest today, who's probably one of the most qualified people I've had on here so far, uh, just to rattle off a bit of what she's done um, or doing. Uh, she, she is the Associate Dean at the University of Waikato. She's the author of multiple books, the co-primary investigator on the International Olympic Committee Advanced Research Grant, the manager of University of Waikato SIF Home of Cycling Research, and the co-founder of Fuel Aotearoa. I'd like to welcome Professor Holly Thorpe. Ah, thanks for having me. That's all right. Thanks for coming on. A few of those credentials are a little bit outdated now, but that's all right. That's all right. It's it's it's, it's about what you've done and what you have done. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. And thanks, obviously Chris. that's just scratching the surface. I'm sure there's heaps of other stuff you've done as well. <laughs> um, so first of all, just Start, uh, starting off with how you got into sports. Have you always been a sports nerd or was it something that... <laughs> sports nerd. Um, <laughs> that's one way to describe me, thanks. Um, yeah, I grew up in a pretty active family in, in Gisborne and Tairawhiti. Yep. Uh, my parents were always into the more alternative type sports. So right. my parents were pretty passionate windsurfers. And um, this is back in the 80s now, telling yeah. my age. But whenever the wind was blowing, basically we wouldn't go to school. They'd throw us into the V-Dub Beetle and off we'd go to the beach yep. and they'd pitch us up a little pup tent and off they'd go windsurfing and we had a whole little community of other little kids who would be hanging out, checking out the rock pools. We had this this whole little life going when the wind would blow. Yep. Um, so this was my first sort of introduction into these alternative lifestyle sport cultures and communities. Yeah. And as my life went on, I, I got involved in lots of other sports, tennis, ballet was a big thing in my early days, um, ended up getting into a lot of track and field, triple jump, um, tennis for a while. So I did all those sports in high school um, and growing up in Gisborne, surfing and skateboarding were always were always around yeah um and i really enjoyed those sports but i never really felt like i belonged this is different gender relations back in those sports then how, how old are we talking oh this is in my in my teenage years oh yeah 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 so during this time i loved pe i loved um studying the moving body yep. um, and this is what basically took me to Otago University where I did my degree in physical education and there we got a very cool foundation in like anatomy, kinesiology, um, psychology, sociology, history, ethics, philosophy, um, biomechanics, all these different ways of knowing sport and physical activity um, and then it was while I was in Dunedin that I, f I got pretty passionate about snowboarding and for me, this was a sport that was really different. I thought at the time, really different to sports I'd done in the past. Mm. Uh, it was different to skateboarding. It was different to surfing where the gender relations were often you're made to feel kind of on the outskirts, like you weren't supposed to be doing those sports, although we did it anyway. But in <laughs> snowboarding, I felt like, um, you know, it was expensive and we found ways around that to try to do it as cheaply as possible with students. But I was able to do it alongside my male friends. And I loved that we'd go riding and there'd be girls and boys and we could learn off each other. And there's a different gender dynamic to that for me. Yep. And this ended up um, kind of ended up combining the studies with this interest in what was going on in the gender relations and snowboarding, this kind of new sport, right? It was newer than any of these sports developed in the, in the eighties, seventies, uh, eighties, um, and so it was this kind of curiosity that ended up leading to my to my research and yep. my PhD in this area where I was studying snowboarding as this sort of global phenomena around the world, but also the gender relations in that. How how uh, difficult is it to learn snowboarding? 
compared to say skiing because I've tried skiing yeah and I was terrible at it and people told me well skiing's actually easier than snowboarding yeah so I used to um I was so passionate about snowboarding back in these days that I ended up doing eight back-to-back winters between New Zealand and the States where right. I was um, I started off instructing snowboarding there um, and then competing in New Zealand. <clears throat> so I did a lot of instructing. And while I was there, I'd get paid a little bit more per hour if I could also cross over with ski instructing. Right. Not that I'd ever been a skier, right? <laughs> but um, so I did teach kids skiing and I'd have to be standing there in my snowboard boots teaching them because these were little kids and it was basically pizza, spaghetti, pizza, oh, spaghetti, right. go, stop, go, stop, right? Yep. So um, they say that children at, at younger ages, it's easier to learn how to ski because of that parallel kind of balance, whereas oh. snowboarding is on the side. But I'd say that's pretty different now with lots of kids growing up on skateboards, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, skateboards yeah. are pretty pretty common around the um, <clears throat> around our communities these days and lots of kids have access from quite a young age yeah uh so i think it depends on your past experience with sporting activities and balance and coordination not saying anything there is but <laughs> well hey just last week i learned how to ride a bike so okay well done congratulations <laughs> yeah yeah i never learned when i was younger so this is this is a new thing for me so balance is, is probably hasn't been my forte for a long time yeah so basically they come back to your first question it has been a passion for sports, yep. a, a wide variety of sports, but particularly those alternative sports, surfing, skateboarding, snowboarding, mm-hmm. these sports that have grown and changed really, really quickly over the last three decades, yep. that they went from really marginalized sports, being, basically being, you know, people would, you know, frown their nose at the skateboarder on the street, yeah, um, that's right. the snowboarders on the slopes, uh, to now being Olympic sports. So we've seen rapid growth, rapid change. Basically, these sports are very much... Um, crossing over with you know fashion popular culture technology development so as a sociologist these these trends and there's the quick pace of change has been fascinating yeah. oh, okay so when you say uh sociologist can you just explain exactly what that is because a lot of people will be like what is that yeah your your main well one of your main expertise is um sports sociology yep sociology is my thing and a lot of people you're right don't have any idea what sociology is i had someone ask me oh that kind of like psychology and um, actually, it's quite a good comparison, yeah. right? So psychology, typically, there's lots of different strands of psychology, but we could say we zoom into the individual. Yeah. Sociology, if we've got a camera lens, imagine a camera lens with a big zoom. Yeah. Psychology might be zooming into the individual. Sociology zooming right out to see a bigger picture beyond right. the individual. So what are the different social forces, the social structures that enable or constrain our lives in lots of different ways? So historically in sociology, we're interested in the in the isms, right? Yeah. Um, racism, classism, sexism, et cetera, where these big social structures and, and um, yeah, press upon our individual lives. Okay. And, and But um, because I'm looking particularly at sporting cultures, it's the same type, often the same types of questions where bigger, you, bigger social trends in sport. That, when you're when you you're doing sociology though, is it is it looking at psych, psychology as well? Yeah, they're both intertwined yeah, in some ways? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So um, for me, I'm really interested in individuals' experiences. So yeah, we definitely do zoom in, but then we uh, and we get to that kind of those ways of knowing through interviews or focus groups or media analysis or observations. Um, and then again, pulling out to see what's the bigger picture here acro- yeah. across individuals. So what are the broad social trends and themes that we're seeing here? So when you're doing your research, 
how do you conduct your research? What are the things that you do when you're doing this yeah, research? Yeah, so there's a there's a process to doing research, right? Uh, yeah, and, it, yeah. and it depends on what the project is that right. will decide your methods to answer those questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously our questions don't come from nowhere. So right. we have particular kinds of theories or things that we're interested in yep. that then encourage us to ask particular types of questions. Okay. And then when we ask those types of questions, we're like, how do we answer that question? Yeah. And it will depend on the topic, the community that you're working with. Um, Can you give me an example? Yeah. So uh, where's, an, where's an example? Um, right now I have a project with a, a PhD student of mine on the experiences of Muslim girls and women in sport in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Okay. So right now I've just had a meeting with her actually. Um, so you can't just walk into that community and ask those questions, right? And mm. I can't do that. So yeah. my PhD student Nita is, is a Muslim woman herself. So she's the best person positioned to, to do those interviews. Um, but obviously it has to be done in a culturally appropriate way that we've got to create safe spaces. How do you um, make sure the invitation gets to the right people? So often in research you have a lot of gatekeepers that you've tried to, got to try to get through to actually... Um, really? Who, who are the gatekeepers? In this project, um, we've got to get through the uh, the Muslim community, but we've also got to get through sports organisations in New Zealand to right. try to get the word out. Yep. So there's lots of... in. As a sociologist, I'm really interested in methodology, right? How do we get to to our participants? Then mm. what's our relationship as a researcher and, and working with those participants? So it's not just about, you know, capturing their voice and making it data and then publishing it, right? Yeah, so yeah. I tend to adopt a feminist approach, which means about respecting our participants and finding ways to change the power structures because as a researcher, you kind of have have power in a sense, right? And you, you, have to, you have to respect your participants and make sure they, they understand uh, the research process, they, have, they know their rights, um, how you write it up. You know, sometimes researchers can write things up in ways, if you go back to the early anthropologists, the ways they, they wrote up these, these communities that they'd go in and study. Yeah. You know, so we've got to be... We've got to be um, have you ever seen another researcher, though, that's published something and then you study it and you're like... I don't sure. I'm not sure if I agree with that. Yeah, well, that's the research process, yeah. right? And that's um, that's more general. And yeah. basically, we have to read everything we possibly can on a topic, yeah. and we'd probably. But there's a difference always, between. We don't always agree with it. Yeah, right. Like you can look at something and read it, but then it's different when you're out in the field and you're actually physically there. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And we can see uh, something that's been published, a project that we can go. That was a really interesting approach that might have worked in that context, but here in Aotearoa, in New Zealand, that's not how we do research. Yeah. Or, um, uh, yeah, often as researchers, we do need to see the gaps yep. in research that's been done, also the limitations in what's been done, so that our work builds upon and extends that. Have you, because I know you've done research in other countries as mm -hmm. well, haven't you? Mm -hmm. Is there a correlation you might find between New Zealand and, say, another country, or do you often find that it's completely different? In terms of doing research? Yeah, or, or like you, you find that the research you do, it turns out totally different when you're dealing with a, a different culture and different ethnic groups, yeah? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, um, and that's that's the thing of, you know, you can't just drop into another country or another culture as a researcher and do a quick visit and get out of there. You've yeah. Because I mean, you know how, like, some people will just try and apply one thing to, like, the entire world. You know, this is something yes. and this applies to everything. So we can pull back and see broader social trends. But if we're yeah. not paying attention to national differences and cultural differences, we're making a big mistake there. Right. And um, 
yes so as a sociologist before i'd go anywhere to do research i've done you know work in afghanistan and gaza and places like that and you have to spend a long time doing a lot of reading educating yourself about these contexts when you say long time how long are we talking uh, like months, years? Yeah, oh, months. Months and months. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes on and on, and you're constantly reading and right. learning more. Okay, so you're constantly updating Yeah, because some of these contexts are changing pretty quickly too. Yeah? So could you do like a, a research on something and then a year later it's totally changed? Well, my work in Gaza has, uh, I mean, it started in 2013. Yeah. The project has evolved and changed, but through that project... Yeah, it's changed radically. Have you you changed a lot, though, from doing this research? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. (laughs) That's a good point. If we were staying the same, it'd be what a boring job that would be. Yeah, And that's actually what I love the most about my job is that our topics can, you know, you need need a a linear path through your kind of your topics. Yeah. But you become passionate about something else or you see a, a major gap. And yeah, we can kind of navigate a, uh, some interesting paths and yeah, if we were still doing the same thing 10, 15 years later, I think we'd be getting pretty bored. Yeah. But the more and more you, you get into the research, the more and more you realize that there's such gaps and you become sort of, you gain confidence and you know that you can you can do that. Because you know when you travel, it, it's good for enhancing the mind and you learn about another culture. And mm-hmm. in particular your case, obviously, mm. you're spending quite a bit of time with these people. So I'd imagine it would probably deeply affect you and yeah, change you in many ways definitely because they do say traveling is enhances the mind i mean every time i travel i've i feel like i've come back a different person yes that's good there's um you know there's whole areas on tourism studies right critical tourism studies yeah. where there's lots of different ways to travel too where some people go to places and they take the snapshot and they go and do that experience and they take yeah. they consume it Rather than spending time, well, which is what I trying. prefer. Yeah, there's lots of different ways yeah. to to, and uh, some forms of travel are pretty problematic um, in terms of, um, you do know, you, ways of consuming a local culture. Do you go away and then come back to New Zealand and appreciate it more? Are there things that annoy you? <laughs> is it a combination of both? I'm always very happy to come home. Yeah, always. I think. I think. Uh, yeah, there's a big world out there. Often, oh, it is. Yep. Often, people in the rest of the world think we're a long, long way away. Um, and every time I come home, I feel very grateful. Yeah. To call Aotearoa home. Yeah. Okay. And um, so, with with your research, do you find that uh, socially, people uh, because what I've noticed is there's some people around that particularly if you're introverted and these days with the internet and technology, you know, people are communicating a lot through digital means Mm -hmm. like a phone or Mm -hmm. Facebook Mm -hmm. or whatever. And I think you lose that ability to socialize and have a social conversation. Do you find that with sports? Because obviously people are working often together, not all sports, but say with rugby or uh, football or something. Do you find that people uh, are more social as a result of that? Well, even with action sports, like say snowboarding or anything, yeah. but even though it's a can be a solo thing, yeah. But you often no. meet other people that are into the same thing that you are. Yeah, no, that's been something that's changed over the time of my of doing research. Right. When I started studying these sporting cultures, the internet was only kind of becoming a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And you, you started having some websites for this for the for these sporting magazines, and you um, they have these kind of forums for different conversations. 
but that's changed so radically. And actually, yeah. um, that was a big part of, of one of my previous books was around how, how young people are using social media yeah. to, to connect and to these sort of imagined communities and these transnational flows of knowledge and ideas. But it's not just like you're sitting in your room doing this. Yeah. It's actually how that intersects with these physical moving cultures. And, um, yeah, I think lots of people have this kind of idea that you're doing one or the other. And in sports, there's, you know, in health discourse, often like young people and phone, you know, social media and video games, and these are all, you know, keeping them from doing physical activities. But what I was actually really interested in seeing is if you go to a skate park or often it goes hand in hand, the filming of these activities. So often you've got your, your phone to organize meeting up with people at the skate park. Then you're there and you're filming each other. Often they'd go home and make their own little videos and share those with their international sort of skate community, get feedback, watch other videos, get inspiration. Next day, go out skating, try some new moves, use your phone to connect with other people. Mm. So actually it's not passive physically active it's actually i'm really interested in how these two interweave right and so that was um yes yeah, some of the early work and actually more recently i've had a cool project with um, some colleagues in australia around women who um use social media for physical activity and the whole oh, okay like, like organizing events yeah um th that's part of it but actually we've been really interested in um have you heard of Fits fitspiration no. So what is or, it? Uh, so basically, it's this whole social media phenomena okay. of um, of. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> fitness influ <laughs> fitness influencers, right? Yep. So they have their own sort of programs. You can buy the programs. You do the programs. You post the selfie of yourself meeting your goals. Um, you know, your before and after photos, there's body transformation photos. This is what I was like before. Look, I'm getting better. You get a support network around you of people saying, hey, well done. You're doing so well. Keep at it. So it's very interesting how these digital communities are operating alongside the physical practices. Right, which is one of the cool things. I, I, it's pretty I like. fascinating, I must yeah. say, yeah. What, what, what is your thought on, on you know, the phenomenon of like esports, which has become like this big massive thing? Yeah. I've, got, um, I've got actually a recruiter from the New Zealand Army coming on and mm -hmm. I'm actually interested to ask them if the New Zealand Army has been affected by esports and if people are less physical than they were before because mm. I'm not sure if you know about the recent Fortnite world tournament where the winner won like four million dollars mm -hmm. which is more than some physical athletes oh absolutely yeah and I'm, I'm wondering if that would dissuade people from you know partaking in more physical sports and oh, I'll just do esports because it's just just this yeah well there's lots of arguments that say that is a you know is it a sport yeah. or is it not a sport <laughs> yeah. and and the, uh, the, some of those elite athletes are doing quite a lot of physical training to that's be in right. that peak condition um and that's not an area of research for me but the university of waikato have a, an esports whole area of expertise developing now which is pretty interesting mm. uh, they have esports scholarships for students um do you have students that uh that you have that are both physical and Esports enthusiasts, or are um, they usually one or the other? I can't comment on that, to be honest. Yeah, uh, I think those that take esports pretty seriously are spending a lot of time. Well, you'd probably, doing it. yeah, you'd have to invest all your time into one yeah. space, I suppose. But I was really interested last year. I was at the Olympism and Action Forum in Buenos Aires, which took was a big two day conference. I was presenting there on the urbanization of sports and what this means for sort of trends in sport. But um, at this two day conference.
there were sports leaders from all around the world, the president of the IOC there, and there were heaps of sessions on esports. And a lot of the traditional sports organizations, whether it's swimming or gymnastics or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah are feeling quite uncomfortable about this move towards esports because the Olympics is basically working through the motions to get esports into the Olympics. Really? Esports in the Olympics? Well, it's complicated. It's a complicated process. And um, Thomas Bark, the president of the IOC, some of his major concerns are around the violence in some of these games and the gender. Because in some of these communities women get quite marginalized oh, yeah. and the treatment of women's not great so no. to go into the olympics that's not the kind of sports they want but yeah. they do want to tap into that this huge huge it's a huge, huge market community huge market and then we get into all the virtual sports and there's just this sports is changing so so fast so yeah. as a sociologist <laughs> all of this is just fascinating stuff oh okay so you you primarily deal um you've studied like fitness health for females mm. So what's some of the stuff you've come away from from doing this research in terms of how the female body works in regards to the male body? Okay, that's kind of different. Um, So... In terms of how it's responded, because you did mention in uh, your lecture that I went and saw that... um, females and i think uh what was the name of it there's something that red you... s yes okay so yeah let's flip a little bit um this is a project that i've had going on for seven or eight years now um on female ath- athletes and female exercises um and a condition called red s which stands for relative energy deficiency in sport that's right there you go and uh, the other acronym related to that is lea which is um, low energy availability. Okay. So this Can- is a condition that used to be thought of as only happening in elite female athletes when they're not quite getting enough energy coming in, so they're not quite fueling, the nutrition's not quite covering the energy being burned in training, etc. Mm-hmm. So it used to be called the female athlete triad, and that's just some sort of a, a conditions associated with this were um, bone health, so bone mineral density, osteoporosis risks, stress fractures, um, disordered eating practices and then um, menstrual cycle changes because of all these kind of hormonal shifts. Right. But what they're recognizing is that it's not just affecting female athletes, it's affecting male athletes too. So not the menstrual cycle, obviously, but their health. So we've got sports where men are not getting enough calories in to cover their training going out. And when that happens over a chronic period of time, that can be really bad for your health. Is there there any statistics that show what those people are eating or drinking yeah. and reg- yeah, yeah. is there a link in terms of stuff that they're so not- it's not necessarily what it's the quantity um right. and so my uh this is a condition that affects basically all of the health systems of the body so um your um your stomach, your gut, your um, hormones, your bones, your heart, cardiovascular health affects your psychology. Um, so what I've been really interested in is how our research can understand these complexities. And a lot there's been a bunch of research on this, which has been most mostly from the physiological side. But at the University of Waikato, I've been working with a team, um, including Dr. Stacey Sims, who's a leading physiologist of um, female athletes, uh, women's health. And we've designed a methodology that has looked at this issue across three different sporting cultures. So with women triathletes and Ironman distance um, 
so pretty serious um, athletes yep. in an endurance sport that they train really long hours. They're often very, very lean, often quite restricted diets. Yeah. Very, very, you know, really carefully um, monitoring their diet. Yeah. As well as really long distances of training. And then the women's rugby sevens team. So obviously a very different sporting culture. It's a team sport. It's based on speed and strength. Um, and they have a wraparound support structure, right? Because they've been doing so well internationally. They have the nutritionist working with them. They have the team physios. Um, and so, and then we've um, been, been doing it with female weightlifters. So that's a very different sporting culture again, yeah. where it's about strength, but often there's weight restrictions. And so there's a lot of um, quite severe kind of dietary practices to get under into a weight category. Yeah. So obviously different types of bodies, different types of sporting cultures, different types of sporting structures. And in, particularly in the Rugby Sevens one, we've been working with nutritionists from Otago. And part of that methodology is they, um, the athletes take photos of every meal oh. and that gets sent down to the team at Otago where they are calculating the calories alongside their training to make sure the nutrition is covering what's wow. required. And this is a longitudinal project leading all the way up to Tokyo next year. Okay. So, so this, when did this start? When did this? Uh, this started at the beginning of last year. Okay. Wow. Okay. So it's quite. So a they're long... not doing this all the way through, but at different phases. At different phases through, through so, the course of it. So yeah, okay. my, come back to your question originally. <laughs> um, it's not necessarily what they're eating, um, but the quantity. But yeah, to making sure it's covering the energy being expended in their training because these these athletes are doing some serious loads. Is this is this on the rise though? Is this becoming... The condition is becoming yeah. increasingly common. Yeah. And it used to be thought of as only being in sort of those sports where women were very, very thin. So yeah. say ballet or gymnastics or figure skating where they actually got judged on what they look like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, female gymnasts, as soon as you develop hips, your rotations slow down. So there's types of sports that used to be... It, oh. is, it is really, really common. Okay. And also in running sports where women are running, you know, athletes are running really long distances. Yeah, yeah. But what they're recognising is happening across a range of sports now, team sports, um, rugby, etc. So, yeah, it's definitely... There's a lot of research happening um, and, yeah, increasing prevalence. And our research is trying to recognise how these social, psychological considerations, sporting cultures, as well as the physiology are kind of intersecting because yeah. none of the research has been doing that already yet. So that's kind of a world first in that area. Um, but so are you, are you very hands-on with that research? Are you physically there? Uh, so I, I, lead the, I lead the interviews, yeah. but I'm not the person doing the other methods, which is the RMRs or the blood right, tests or right. the DEXA scans. We've got a whole team working with us on that. Uh, okay. But um, So that's obviously both all those three projects are with elite athletes. Yeah. But what the research is also showing is that it's really, these issues are really common among female exercisers mm -hmm. who are going to the gym, training, carefully watching their diet, um, not quite getting enough energy in to cover what's going out, either accidentally or purposefully, right? They're kind of trying to diet, trying to lose weight. Yeah. And so they actually um, can go into this LEA or red S state. Are a lot of female athletes even aware of these conditions though? Increasingly becoming aware. But um, when I first started researching this, no. no. And there's a lot of stigma around this, particularly in, in sporting cultures, when now we've got a lot of male coaches working with our top female athletes, and they don't want to talk about periods, and they don't want to talk about menstruation. 
um, they don't really want to talk about these things. So part of our sort of agenda has, we've had um, three national symposiums over the last few years where we're trying to get the coaches, the athletes, all the medical professionals, um, the researchers there as well, so we can actually start raising, getting the dialogue going. Yeah. Um, and I think it's starting to, to shift and, and we're getting more traction in that where athletes are increasingly aware but yeah, there's so still, how, do you still have a lot any, of stigma. Yeah, do you have any other methods of how to get the word out though? Yeah, so it can't all be on me, right? We've got yeah, to, yeah, yeah. But oh, not, when yeah, I yeah. say you, I'm, I'm talking about yeah, obviously so, um, the whole research field. So High Performance Sport <clears throat> New Zealand, the, the lead uh, medical doctor there, his name's um, Bruce Hamilton, and he came to our first symposium on this topic and he knew it was an issue for our female athletes and he also really recognised the value in what we're trying to lead, which is this multidisciplinary approach. Yeah. So he set up a couple of years ago this working group called WISPER, Okay. Which is Healthy Women in Sport, a performance approach. The acronym has shifted around a little bit. Right. But we have a team of us that we meet um, three or four times a year, and we have endocrinologists, sports doctors, physiologists, sports scientists, myself as a sociologist. We have strength and conditioning coaches, um, physios. And so it's a very multidisciplinary group, and we're working together on one understanding like what's the research base what do we know where are the gaps what do we need to do (laughs) and then how do we roll that out to raise awareness to improve practice and we've just had a survey um across all of our elite carded athletes female athletes in new zealand yeah and we're in the process of um disseminating that data at the moment in terms of these issues so we, okay. so we do this is like the first time a country's ever had a full sweep a full you know, full understanding of what's going on for the elite female athletes yeah. so we're in a pretty unique position to um now start rolling out or suggesting some changes uh, okay mm. there's a bit of a controversial thing i want to ask you okay um because i i feel it's important to discuss um because obviously there are some people uh so there might be a man that has a sex change or becomes a woman mm-hmm. and then they enter. So uh, there was one in particular, there was a, a yep. ma- man that became a woman then he entered Olympic weightlifting. Yeah, Laura Hubbard's. Yeah, yeah. And just totally destroyed the competition. Now, obviously, biologically, they're still a man, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you, because if, as if, if I had a daughter and, you know, and she trained for months and months yeah. and then she competed and then she lost, I feel like it's kind of a, it's unfair yeah. in some ways, but how is it something you tackle? Because, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a fine very, line. Very controversial topic. Yeah. And does, have you spoken to anyone or various groups about this and how to yeah, tackle Yeah, this it? is a big topic in our Whisper group yeah. because we, it's such a multidisciplinary group. We have some physiologists, et cetera, who are very much um, advocating that this is unfair um they that um transgender athletes have a have testosterone um that they've been born with which has created all these changes in the body that therefore even when they become a woman and they change the the hormonal makeup they've still got all those physical and physiological advantages so it is unfair um as a sociologist i've got to think about the ethics of that type of rationale which um for me what is sport about yeah is it just about winning or is it about um for some people it is yeah but as society we need to think about what is sport about right and if you tell these women who have had 
probably a pretty difficult life and a body that they do not feel is right for them. They go through this whole process of having this change happen. They're not doing it to cheat in sport, but they get treated as if they're trying to cheat. And yeah. then we're also telling them that they don't fit anywhere. They can't participate in women's sport. And they, and they identify as women. So then they cannot identify, they cannot participate in men's sport. Could you have like that a different... That basically says that they can't participate anywhere. And well, I, you'd have to make another... Morally and, and ethically, I don't think that's what sport is about. Yeah. Right? But you know how like... So let's say... Let's use China as an example. Mm-hmm. There are some very, very strict parents out there mm-hmm. that, you know, they they train their kids from a very young age and you know um discipline them a lot and let's mm. say if they go to the olympics or something and they don't win mm. there can be some serious repercussions for yeah, that right yeah. so if they're competing against someone like a, a transgender mm-hmm. uh person then and they're disadvantaged then it it, it opens up a whole can of worms so i like it's it seems like such a uh you know difficult task to manage to yeah it really it really really is a very complicated one that a lot of sports organizations around the world are trying to trying to work through um and i mean it's hard i i i can't see any answer that's why it's like i wanted your opinion it's as, really as a controversial it's yeah. really controversial and well, people you know, try, to, try to apply a black and white thing to it and it's not no, as simple as that but also we need to think about the history of sport right and women history of sport has basically was designed by men for men based on the extremes of male bodies and it's been like that for since the ancient greek sport yeah and so over the last sort of 50 years we've seen remarkable changes in women's sporting participation yeah where they've carved out space they're increasingly being recognized increasingly getting paid almost you know um decent salaries some sports more so than others yeah and we're seeing real changes and that's happened because of female activism in terms of women leading in sport women um, as athletes who are increasingly willing to to speak out we go back to like the billy jean king and tennis yeah um so when we come to this issue of transgender, yep, it's in that context of sport being historically conceived as this male thing, this male preserve. And so, yeah, I think it's a real issue that we as a society need to think about is, is what is what is sport all about? And the Olympics, even them, the Olympic values are not just about the best, like who's the best. It's actually about values social values I, principles. I think it is but i think the media and other or well, other forms of media yeah. try to perceive it as how many medals can yeah win? of course of course yeah but sport is never a, a fair or equal playing ground oh no like, it's not. you know like one we might think testosterone is this unfair advantage which it may be physiologically depend, according to the physiologist probably depends on the sport <laughs> but we can't go all men are better than all women right it's a no. huge continuum of, of gender and ability and funding like if we're trying to get sport thinking about it as a fair and equal playing ground playing field then one of the biggest changes i mean one of the biggest advantages is funding in sport if you come from a country that is throwing money at you providing you with the amazing yeah. facilities and resources and helps you travel the world to compete etc that's an unfair advantage to other countries who have no money athletes who can't um buy the latest uh you know swimming swimming suit that helps you swim faster or the latest technologies that help you i mean sport is never a f- equal playing field and no. testosterone is just one part of this 
So, yeah. But people, people don't really realize that, though, do they? You make a very valid point with the with funding, you know. Let's take the All Blacks, for, for example. Yeah. You know, a lot of money is pumped into them than, say, other... other... Well, let's not get on to funding in sport New Zealand. <laughs> You're going to get me into some trouble. Okay. Because, you know, I mean, yeah, rugby is a big part of our culture in New Zealand and, and it gets a lot of funding because it they're does. very successful. And yeah, it's yeah. awesome to see some funding towards our female rugby players. But there are so many sports in New Zealand that are so underfunded and real talent and amazing athletes, but they don't get just a, you know, get a trickle of the funding. Yeah. Well, the problem is you can't there's, – there's just not a limitless amount of money. So you're limited but, in terms of how you can fund yeah. it. So you have to allocate it. But, but, but who, who makes those allocations yeah, based on who, what? That's very controversial, yeah. Who actually does make those decisions in terms of funding? I don't even know who. Uh, yeah, so High Performance Sport New Zealand right. funds their, the, the different sports and then those sports get funding based on their international achievements and there's, I guess, a matrix of considerations in terms of the funding that I'm uh. not probably the the best expert to um, sometimes it's hard to to get into those nitty gritty yeah, yeah, details. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's fair enough. So you're, you're going to the Olympics next year. We talked about it briefly. Um Yes. You're going to Japan well, yeah, to do um, some research work, right? Yeah, hopefully. So I've been working with my colleague, Associate Professor Belinda Wheaton at the University of Waikato, and we have been um, working. We had an IOC Advanced Research Program grant, so International Olympic Committee. Yeah. And this was back in 2016 and 2017 when basically the IOC and the Tokyo um, 2020 organizing committee had announced that five new sports would be shortlisted for inclusion in Tokyo. So One this, of them was breakdancing, wasn't it? No, no, that's for Paris. Oh, 2024. Yes. yes. So, and so this was shortlisting, right? Of surfing, skateboarding, sport climbing, right? Baseball, softball, and karate. These new sports were being shortlisted when our project started, and then more recently they were. Uh, it was actually at the Rio Games that yeah. it was announced that they were being included. So in Tokyo next year, you'll see these five new sports. Wow. Okay. And a big part of this has happened with some major policy changes um, at the IOC level and what's called Agenda 2020, yep. which has 40 different items where they're trying to um, to revolutionize and change the Olympic model so that it... To what? It becomes more flexible, it becomes more sustainable, environmentally sensitive. There's all these different, 40 different items. Okay. And one of them is um, to be able to have the program to be a bit more flexible because the changes in the program of the Olympics has been very, very hard to create change there. But the IOC recognizes that they're losing younger viewers. So the average age of Olympic viewers is 55 years and graying, basically. Really? So this is lots of reasons for this, right? Young people aren't watching the Olympics anymore. They've got lots of other more important things to do. And they don't just sit down and watch TV for all day like we might once have done during well, the Olympics. Well, because of social media and we everything. We might, you know, get a YouTube clip. Yeah. And, oh, it's interesting, but we don't consume sports in the same ways that we used to. Yeah, that's and, right. And young people, they're at a competition for their attention. There's so many different varieties of things they might rather be doing, whether it's esports, whether it's skateboarding at the skate park, whatever it might be, right? And so the IOC is recognizing that, hmm, people aren't really tuning into a lot of the sports that we have had for a very long time. So how do we... Um, what was, the, was there a drop-off between 2016 and 2020? 12, like what was the drop-off in terms of viewership? Uh, well, it's always complicated in terms of what country it's in, etc. Um, oh, right. And I don't have those 
those stats for you. Yeah. But it is. It was is, it well? I know you wouldn't have the exact stats, but yeah. would, was it quite dramatic? Or is it like a slow? It's been thing? a slow, slow decline. So what the you know things like the YouTube channel for the Olympic Games, they're really trying to Push to, to move with the times with that, yeah. and bringing these sports in as part of bringing hopefully bringing young people back to these sports, mm. uh, back to the Olympics. Um, so our research is really focused on surfing, skateboarding, and sport climbing mm-hmm. because. Belinda and I, we've been doing research on these sporting cultures for a long time. Yeah. And if you look at the history of these sports, they developed in the 70s and the 80s, often with quite countercultural, anti-establishment, do-it-yourself kind of philosophies. They were often developed in contrast to dominant jock sport cultures, parent cultures, strict coaches and hierarchies of sport. They, they were drawn to and developed these sports as something different. Yeah. Now, over time, we've seen a lot of change with the X Games and the increasing institutionalization, professionalization, commodification, commercialization of those sports, <laughs> right? So now the in these sports, there's very much competitive routes for athletes to become professional, well-paid athletes. Yeah, yeah. Where they travel the world as athletes. Um but when these sports are being were being discussed to go into the Olympics, there was quite a lot of controversy in these sporting cultures. Not nec- some of the athletes were like, mm, I don't know if this is good for our sports. But the cultures more broadly, your sort of everyday recreational participants are like, surfing shouldn't be at the Olympics. A lot of skateboarders around the world were like, hell no. The Olympics is basically the sporting establishment and yeah. that's we're an art form we're about creativity and self-expression we, when we get kind of squeezed into their model what happens to our sport if we mm. don't have any control over that so we've in our research been really interested in that whole process of okay if these sports are going, going to go into the olympics what is the right way for that to happen so that skateboarders feel like they've got a voice they've got some control over that they don't feel like they're losing the autonomy of their sports and in skateboarding in particular it was really interesting because there were three different sports skateboarding organizations that wanted to be the ones leading it it was quite so they were all like fighting with each other to yeah quite (laughs) quite a lot of friction still a moving beast in that space um so, so how how is it decided what what is even shortlisted in the first place? Do a whole bunch is there like a panel of people? Very many many stages of that process, and um, in terms of the shortlisting, that was a decision between the Tokyo Organizing Committee and the IOC. Mm-hmm. And the and I must say the IOC was working with us through that process with the research informing their discussion that the IOC was sending out young people to surfing, skateboarding, sport climbing events, talking to the right people, talking to athletes, talking to industry organisers, talking to sponsors, trying to get a real sense of what does this mean for these sports, how if we do this, how do we do it right. So actually the IOC was making a real effort. If we are going to do this, we need to do it the right way. Yeah. And our research was documenting all of that, and um, which is actually quite a significant shift from the IOC than what we've seen previously where when they brought in these new sports like windsurfing in 1984, I think it was, and snowboarding in 1998, which was really controversial. Yeah. Because snowboarding got shoved in under the International Federation of Skiing and they had no control oh. over that process. And there were a lot of snowboarders at the time who were like, no way. Yeah. We won. We're not going to the Olympics. We're absolutely protesting that. And there yeah. was a... Um, uh, basically the world's best snowboarder at the time, Norwegian uh, Terje Harkinson, who was very political and outspoken and really critical of the IOC and what the Olympics means for snowboarding. And so when we see these sports, these new ones, the IOC working through a different model of trying to work with them, trying to understand if we're going to do this, how do we do it right? Quite significant um, differences and changes in approach. 
that's been really interesting to, to witness and document. Um, and then more recently, um, uh, FIG, the International Federation of Gymnastics, they've been trying to kind of do that old model where they've been trying to bring in parkour. Under, oh. And the whole parkour community around the world has been like, we're not gymnastics. We yeah. actually have our organizing bodies and we want to, if, if this happens, we should be the ones managing this process. So in a way, it's kind of gone back to the old model. So maybe it's not does, such signs of progress. The more sports you bring in, does the more convoluted it get? Does the more complex it get? Yeah, so the IOC have a cap on how many sports, that how many events they can have as part of an Olympic program. And so when they bring new sports in, old sports have to go out, which gets... Uh, they didn't, so they, so with bringing in like these new sports, yeah. what are some of the older sports that So they be? didn't necessarily happen with these ones because it's a new thing where host, is it trial? host countries are able to apply to have new sports coming in. Is this a trial or is this, this is, a permanent this thing? This is a trial for okay. Tokyo. And <clears throat> LA is the next one and they have the, the option to keep those sports or not. Right. This is kind of the agenda 2020 shifting in the program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is where uh, Paris, which is the next Olympic, next Summer Olympics, that's 2024. Yep. They, they're bringing in breakdancing. Yeah, when you, said that, keep, when you said that at yeah. the public lecture, And I they're was keeping like, oh. surfing and they're keeping skateboarding and they're keeping sport climbing. Yeah. Um, I find breakdancing interesting because it's more dancing as opposed to a sport, I would very think. Very interesting. Uh, it's a sporting, then, cultural, artistic form that I'm not an expert on, so I won't even yeah, yeah, to comment. But, uh, <laughs> because obviously I would think that might open the floodgates for, you know, other types of dancing. Like, you know. Yeah, I mean, they have within that, Within that sport, they have their all their rules and regulations, and and it's in because it meets very strict criteria of what the IOC have to become an Olympic sport. And Do you don't happen to know what that criteria is? Not, not offhand. <laughs> yeah, but it has to be it has to be truly an international sport. They have to right. have uh, regular competitions. They have to have um, yeah, it has to be a a fully um, structured international organization that oversees you know so it has you can't just have a sport like um you know a sport that's only in a country or in a small group of countries it's really popular in a small group of countries you couldn't put that into the olympics because it wouldn't be globally a global sport what's defined as global though i think it has to be participated in all continents all continents something like that um oh okay don't so, quote, your don't quote me on that <laughs> but you know so i i would initially was like breaking that's so strange you know yeah. but i'd actually at the um when i was in buenos aires last year for the olympus of an action forum that, that was during the youth olympic games and so i went along with a group of us um with the ioc to witness what they were doing in their urban park Mm. which is another area where they're really, with these sports, they're trying to change the feel and vibe and representation of the Olympics. So it was free to get in. You brought, a, you know, once tickets, once the, you'd registered and once that had all sold out, you brought a skateboard in, you could still get in. So they've got the skate park over here. They've got the climbing wall over there. They've got the break dancing there. They've got live music here. People flow in between these events. There's a real festival yeah. vibe about it. There's some um, graffiti happening over here. They're really trying to tap into that festival vibe. And that's definitely what we're going to see in Tokyo. And just recently, I think it's in Budapest, they had the World Urban Games, which is parkour and skateboarding yeah. and BMX and inline skating and, and again, the IOC is trying to respond to these trends of um, this 
creating this festival environment. And yeah, there's lots of lots of considerations that they've taken on board in terms of why they're going in this direction. One of them is, you know, losing younger viewers. Yeah. But also that whole festival environment. Um, supposedly the research shows that it translates much better into audience participation. So they're really trying to break down that divide of people sitting in stadiums watching sport yeah. to actually being amongst, amongst it, standing right there from an athlete, having a go yourself. Um, uh, basketball three-on-three three is being brought oh, in as well. Okay. So all, they're really trying to change, make sport more accessible, yeah. break down these kinds of divides, which... which um, yeah, it's pretty interesting things to be witnessing. Yeah, I suppose year to year you must see so many changes. I think it's exhilarating yeah. right now. Have you have you witnessed over the last year any new sports that have been created? Or even the last few years? New sports. Mm. Or like a new or something that could potentially evolve into a sport. I don't know. Uh, there's always always there's new always modifications always going on. Something yeah. popping up. Yeah, yeah. So when you when you well, if you do go to uh, Tokyo, mm-hmm. what what specifically will you be doing there? Will you be on the ground? Or? Yeah, so Belinda and I, the ideal, um, depending on funding, would be that we were at the surfing, skateboarding and sport climbing events. Right. We'd be very keen to – so we've got a book um, that will be published shortly after the Olympics. So the plan is to – because we've been researching this for, for years now – to have the book ready to go except for the final chapter, which the final chapter will be what we witness in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. To publish it before then, the story's not finished, yeah. right? So what actually happens with these sports? Um, we're very keen to do interviews with the people who've been involved in the process of getting them there, right. how they their reflections on how they felt it went, did it did it was it what they hoped it would be, some of the things that they didn't kind of turn out the way they hoped it would. Mm-hmm. But we're also really interested in, in this, you know, the idea of bringing these sports in is that it brings back younger viewers and mm. has a different sort of audience engagement with sports at the Olympics. So the idea will be to see how the Japanese and international audiences engage with these sports. Because I would imagine where the Olympics is held mm-hmm. will play a big part in the viewership mm-hmm. as well, um, particularly with cultures, because you know how Japanese have certain things that they're into and then, you know, in France they'll have d- different things that they're into and that mm-hmm. all affects viewership. Is it always, do you know if it's, the highest turnout of viewership is in the country where it's held, usually? Or like or there's like a huge increase in that particular country? Of viewership? Yeah, yeah. Like say, so say because the Olympics is being held in Japan this year. Yeah. There would be a huge... Next year. I mean, next year, yeah, mm-hmm. sorry. Uh, in terms of uh, it being viewed, will it be... Do you think it'll be viewed more than say it oh, was in Oh, if it 2000... wasn't being hosted yeah, there, yeah. would they? I'm sure, yeah, I'm yeah. sure there. Would you like to see the Olympics held here one day in New Zealand? No. I mean, I don't think, no. Do you think it will ever happen? There is so much controversy around the world um, with bringing the Olympics to Any cities. Yeah. Um, and, you know, host cities, when they can't, when their cities get shortlisted, there's massive protests around this. Really? Yes, absolutely. So in Rio and even in Vancouver um, with the Winter Olympics in 2010, because in terms of taxpayer dollars, oh, and, you know, if you're right. in countries where there's, a lot of money gets spent on building massive facilities and all that, of that. That might that only the, be used once too. Exactly. And is that the best use of taxpayer dollars, whether it might be yeah, housing, commun- communities have nowhere to sleep or, you know, is that the best use of taxpayer dollars? And yeah. so we're seeing a lot of concerns. <laughs> um, and this yeah. is this is part of the issue for the IOC in terms of um, 
making this making the Olympics more affordable and sustainable well, how would you for even host do that? cities. Yeah. How would you even do that, especially if you're bringing in more sports and you're trying to... Because usually with these things, how it works is every year or every four years, in this case, it has to get bigger. It has to be better. Yeah. You know, so you yeah. end up spending more money usually. Yeah, well, that's part of bringing these new sports in is um, trying to move towards that more sustainable model, right? So with the skateboarding and the sport climbing, these are not big venues that you need to build and actually the the idea is that this will be in this urban kind of environment for those sports and then they can break down those climbing walls or break down that park mm. and donate it to a community or it becomes oh, so it's right. actually not having to spend millions and millions and millions of dollars of building a big new venue is, they're actually much more affordable sporting does most of the money just go to actually building the venue or Ooh. the facilities uh, it's it... a big part of it, but also you've got all the transport issues. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was in Tokyo uh, in December last year, and I went to the Tokyo Organizing Committee up on the 20th floor, and they've got 100 staff up there have been working for four years, and they're pointing out the big new venue for these sports and you know all the transport issues of moving huge populations safely to and between venues huge logistical nightmares for yeah. any any host city i bet i bet now i know you've um you've done some research with uh people after natural disasters mm -hmm. or some type of accident so you were you're involved uh with christchurch after the earthquake yeah so i did research um you yeah with people who had been affected by the christchurch earthquakes mm -hmm. and um i was particularly interested in talking to those people who were active sporting participants before the earthquake. So right. whether it was in, in these alternative sports, these kind of lifestyle sports. So yep. surfers, uh, climbers, skateboarders, mountain bikers, where yep. they're not athletes, but there's yeah. a very much part of why they choose to live where they live, a big part of their kind of daily or weekly routines. Often doing these sports helps them connect with their kind of community. through. And mm. so when the earthquakes happened, um, obviously people were immediately focused on the health of, of themselves and their family, getting their houses sorted, finding somewhere to, to be safe with their families and their, their near, near, nearest and dearest. But after, you know, a few weeks, a few months passed, so many of them realized that they're trying to get a sense of normalcy or something familiar, trying to get life back on track. And for many of them, they noticed a big thing was missing was their their physical activity, the sports that they do. So, across, you know, across more traditional organized sports same thing the venues football fields swimming you know all of these were damaged and destroyed so people were not able to you know even going for a walk some of these places were really polluted air pollution for example mm. um you know for people who loved walking along the beach or going for surfing the beaches were closed for nine months because of the the raw sewage being pumped out into the ocean oh wow i didn't realize it was that long and then all those people who would love mountain biking or walking along the port hills they all you know so or climbing so many climbing tracks and mountain biking tracks were destroyed forever yeah. so actually a lot of people who are passionate about these sports and get through these sports really gained a sense of connection to their place that they live um it really rattled, obviously, physically the earth, but also the things that hold their life together, right? Yeah. And a lot of them really mourned the loss of these places. And what I witnessed was um, through the research, people seeking out alternatives to really try to um, do these sports again, to help them cope and process um, with what was going on around them, often quite stressful, uh, you know, home lives, etc. So skaters... Um, 
they took to the streets and they actually quite enjoyed all the broken, changed environment. Obviously, the downtown was, was red zones. They couldn't, they lost a lot of their favorite skating spots. But there's um, some pretty amazing footage of these guys, you know, and they were mostly guys um, skating in these very, you know, torn up parts of the city. Some of them um, found these broken down uh, or closed off places that were set out for de- um, being demolished, warehouses. And they'd go in there and the community oh. would, all the skaters would gather and come to these indoor warehouses and they'd build skate ramps and areas of steps to drop off and they'd gather and be together and, and participate in the sport that they love. Um, whereas the surfers, the climbers, um, they would, they'd be texting their friends to carpool out. So the climbers would go out to um, uh, the bouldering sites uh, inland and the so Castle Hill and then the surfers would... Um, because it, you know it's expensive, they'd have to drive an hour north or an hour south to get to unpolluted surfing beaches when the surf yeah, was good. Yeah. And so there'd be a whole day away. <clears throat> but they talked about how doing these sports again helped them deal with their stress, helped them make sense of their lives, kind of gain regain some of the rhythms, and also you know the social connections through these sports, being with their friends. Mm. Um, some of the older participants of these sports really expressed some anxieties of going traveling away yeah. from their families if something happens again they're too far away yeah so they carry this new anxiety with them um how so, long did this go like how long were you there for when you so were doing I just went in there and I was there for a week and just did all these interviews basically okay. um but then the research took an interesting turn um when I was focusing on a particular case of Sumner and the Sumner community, they obviously lost um, a bunch of the beautiful trails and they had a lot of damage in that area and the kids were left with nothing to do. So a lot of these kids got together with some family, with some parents and set up a little mini skate ramp in, in the downtown sort of village. So the kids would all get together and, yeah. and have fun. Often they'd go home and the parents are stressed about insurance and school and work and this is a place where they could go and just play. Mm. And that's a really important thing in these these types of environments of, of high stress and um, disaster. So then what I was very interested to see is Levi Strauss offered um, $180,000 to build a skate park on the on the boardwalk, on the water there, the waterfront. And so the whole community was like, yeah, someone's, because, you know, the, the council couldn't just yeah, build skate parks yeah, everywhere. Yeah. So here's a transnational corporation offering a skate park. But... Um, there was a lot of people who owned waterfront properties, very, very, very expensive waterfront properties who were like, no way, not a skate park in front of my house. Yeah. So there's a real clash in this community in terms of um, what does this rebuilding process look like? And, well, um, there's the, re- the rebuilding still going on now. Oh, of course it is. I was there recently. and Oh, yeah, yeah it's, it's going to go on for a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. But I've been really focused in on around um, what this skate park issue brought up because it was all of these broader issues and so I went down to various um, big community meetings and one of them there were over 200 people young people you know making statements um, you know the house owners making statements and it was very emotional and um, in the end Levi Strauss pulled their funding because um, because the the landowners had made it so difficult and they had such great funding they could choose to find the best lawyers and very interesting the politics of rebuilding oh yeah well politics in general is just yeah it's just a microcosm it's just a little case study and the role of sport in that and community yeah yeah oh wow 
This has been very informative. <laughs> We've covered a lot of terrain here. We, we we have we have. Is there any place, any particular country that you've you've gone to, which, uh, or a country that you haven't been to, or a city you haven't been to that you'd really like to go and do some research? Do research. Yeah. Hmm. I'm, a, I'm more and more interested in uh, New Zealand. Actually, New Zealand. That's cool. Yeah, I started off and I was more interested in what was happening in the rest of the world. And now in my career at this point, I'm more and more interested in understanding what's happening in our own communities and developing methodologies and collaborations to understand what's going on in our own backyard because I think it's it's fascinating and uh, the world needs to know. Yeah, I think slowly people are learning about New Zealand and how how much we can offer actually. Yeah, absolutely. We've definitely been put on the international stage. Definitely. We definitely have a lot of um, sporting athletes that that are really really good, um, yeah, and, and and we've always been the underdogs. I feel. Yeah, and, and research wise, we've got some massive gaps, um, such as. Oh, like the project I mentioned before, Muslim girls and women, and yeah, sport. Yeah. Like, there's just nothing in that area, and there's very little in terms of um, Pacifica people's experience of sport, or you know. So there's so, huge gaps here. Well, I just saw the the stats for the 2018 census. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and it was it was a bit of an eye opener in terms mm. of how small a lot of these minorities are, and how probably they they in terms of the population size yeah. and how scattered they are can be because obviously New Zealand European seems to be the dominant. Yeah, but wasn't there a lot of politics around the uh, the census actually not getting out to a lot of these communities? I think so, and I think I mean I don't know how accurate it is. I went on the the website and they stated all these reasons of how they filled in the gaps. So I don't know how accurate it, mm. it is, but even so, obviously there is there is a lot of uh, minorities, a lot of groups here that probably don't you know don't get the funding that they need in terms of um, their sporting facilities and other facilities. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, I agree. And, uh, as a researcher working with organizations like Sport New Zealand, we've got, um, mm. you know, as a, it's a collaborative project on the Muslim girls and women's participation in sport because really they recognize gaps in knowledge. Um, well, they're more aware probably because they're there, they're on the ground, they know. Yeah, but just because we don't know, sometimes it's hard to know how we should know. So <laughs> Yeah, well, that's right, that's right. And then how do we do that research? And then not just do the research and publish it in a journal here, but actually make sure that research then translates into into policy and into informing the people that actually Cause the, the, are working the, on the grassroots Part level. of the problem is like if you do all this research and then you're trying to get it out to the people, <clears throat> sometimes people just want everything in sound bites and snippets. <laughs> so to try and condense all of your research to say, well, this is the conclusion we reached and sum it up in one sentence would be incredibly frustrating i assume yeah so a lot of um for me doing research if it's not if we're not finding a way to translate it to sports organizations or down to the community level where it's actually having an impact i'm not sure what the point of it is other than contributing to knowledge on these journals that a few people might read so that's something i've been really working hard at at the international level with the ioc um, with sport new zealand with high point sport new zealand to making sure that the research does inform yes because often as academics we have language yeah that we don't realize is a language that not everybody understands, right? Yeah, yeah. So how do we translate our findings? And so we publish, and often there's lots of theory and dense language, but when we're communicating or translating that to a sports organisation, they just need 
the usable stuff. Yeah. So how do we actually do that research in the academic journals, et cetera, as well as having conversations with those people involved in organizations, et cetera. And I think there's a big kind of um, divide that um, needs to go two ways. Mm. And we're working on that. We're working on that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's always ongoing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. That's <laughs> good. You learn both. I think we learn um, a lot about some of our assumptions in our research, some of the things that we just kind of take for granted, mm. um, what's actually usable knowledge. Do you get frustrated, though, if you see like misinformation that's getting put out there? Because you know how like anyone can just post anything on the internet and yeah. it's somehow a valid source. <clears throat> uh, and it's it's getting to the point where it's very hard to determine what is fact and what yeah. is fiction? We did that. It was our first year students, right? Like, what's a legitimate source? How oh, really? do you know? Yeah. So, in terms of, so what do you make them do? Do you make them make them go online? Well, and I think do it's like about it? starting with awareness that there's lots of different sources of information out there, and yeah. some of them have been through different processes of um, the research behind it, the vetting process. Like, mm -hmm. for something to appear in an academic journal, it's gone through sometimes year long, longer than a year processes of um, blind review. Um, so it's very rigorous, right? In yeah. terms of a lot of stuff's been um, critiqued and challenged before it even ends up in a journal. Yeah. Versus something that's been posted that's got getting lots and lots of likes or lots and lots of retweets or whatever it is. Does that make it more legitimate knowledge? And it might just be someone just spouting off something that they've worked well for them in their nutrition or whatever. Well, that's that's what happens sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes people think popular what's popular is yeah. truthful yeah yeah so, so yeah, yeah so we work with our students to make sure that they can identify there's lots of different sources of knowledge out there yeah and then so yeah, it like a some, test? Are, some are more credible than others so is it like a test that you do on them it's not a test it's a sort of an it's an activity just an informative yeah way of okay this is what to look out for yeah so what are so some of the ways that you pick up on stuff not being fact what would be some of the ways? So if I, I was, if I was, let's say, if I was going online and I was yeah. trying to find some information on, I don't know, research on skateboarding or something. Yeah. How would I determine what is is false and what is? Well, do you consider the source? Yeah, obviously that's the first. All one. right. So is it a Wikipedia? <laughs> Wikipedia, um, or is it a journal article, or is it a skate magazine, or is it someone's blog? And actually, if you know the source, you can kind of and you get a sense of who's produced it and for what reasons mm. doesn't make it not helpful mm. but you know that it's come from a particular opinion versus an extensive multi-year long sort of process of developing that knowledge across lots of different people yeah. so one person's opinion versus um you know extensive kind of research and it's not to say necessarily that um one is better than another but to know the source, to know the motivations, to know where it's come from, who so what, produced it. So what would be some, if, if I was trying to find some information or research on sports, what would be some good sources in terms of websites? What some websites you would recommend yeah. for getting Well, it depends at, what you're looking for. Yeah. for but um, Is there, any, is there any, anything in terms of like a general overview? 
Yeah, so if you go to something like Sport New Zealand website, yep. they have a lot of their reports, whether it's youth sport or whether it's you know mapping across the Sport New Zealand, where they have kind of like a census or a big survey, yep. which is pretty pretty extensive and pretty rigorous. Okay. Um, but then you've got you know the academics across the country who are working in the space, whether it's sports science, sports psychology, sports sociology, sport history. I mean, we've got a bunch of academics working in that space. So there's different journals. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, and then some sports organisations themselves are doing their own research in house. So, okay, mm. I'll have to keep that in mind because mm. this is this is part of the problem I find when <laughs> I'm looking at stuff online. I'm like, is this real? Is this fake? I don't know. I well, it's good that myself. you're asking that question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I go on Reddit quite a bit, mm-hmm. and there's, they often have um, subreddits for different. So, say yeah. for example, there's a subreddit on World News or a subreddit on Futurology or something, and they'll have like articles or all the stuff that you know news and then yeah. i'm wondering i'm looking at and i'm looking at it sometimes and i'm like hmm, is this real or not hmm. sometimes i have to sift through the comments because people have probably already worked out whether it's fake or not which yeah is, right <laughs> which is good so the there's one asking those questions yeah well and you know there's 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 a lot of misinformation that's getting put out there Absolutely. you know um on the world stage yeah. you know some political leaders are getting advised by people that are you know providing misinformation so it's you know, and it's easy for yeah, people we're to... Yeah, when the times of fake news. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right, that's right. Um, something, a site that I really enjoy, um, it's called The Conversation. And that is a, um, it's an international organization, but it's basically, how do they call it? Um, it's like academic rigor with journalistic flair. Something okay. like that's their byline. So it's basically academics who do, you know, year-long, multi-year you know, career-based research, but they are um, presenting it as, you know, quite short right. and really written for everyday audiences, but with links to the legitimate research. And it's um, rigorously kind of processed by the by the editorial team oh. at the conversation. So it kind of makes the latest research accessible okay. to mainstream audiences. That's good. Yeah, okay, it's I'll pretty have to cool, it actually, yeah. The conversation, it's The called. conversation. Okay. Well, all good. Okay, I'll have to check that out. Cool. All right. Well, um, hey, I might wrap up there. Unless there's anything specifically no. that you want to talk about. Thanks. That was fun. Yeah, yeah. I think um, hopefully you get a sense of what a sociologist of sport does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, um, if, if, you, uh, if, if Tokyo happens and stuff and you do end up going there and it's, you know, uh, mm-hmm. you were saying it's it's pretty costly there <laughs> during the Olympic World Games. Yep, yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, if it does happen, feel free to come back on at any any point in time and tell me all about your research. Yeah, and stuff. I'm sure it's going to be a pretty pretty fascinating thing to witness. Yeah, yeah, I've never been to Japan. I've been wanting to go to Japan for years, but and I was hoping to go next year, but it's going to be too expensive. So I might just wait until all of that with the Olympic Games is over. Yeah, yeah, and then go from there. But um, hey, thank you. Thank you My so pleasure. Much. Thanks for having me along. All right, that's the show, guys. Until next time, stay safe. See ya. <laughs>